You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2019 miniseries, Chernobyl. So we thought we'd do something. I've always been wanting to do a miniseries, expanding, even though it's called Philosophy at the Movies, there's a lot of great television stuff, both series and miniseries, knowing the length the series would take just to watch it, especially if it's something you haven't seen. I figured, let's not do a series, but a miniseries I think is manageable. (laughs) And this was one that just came out two years ago that I really wanted to do ever since I saw it. And as the title shows, this follows the Chernobyl disaster in April of 1986. And it it covers pretty much everything. It covers the events just before and leading up to and during the explosion and the government's efforts to not only fix the damage and assess it, but also what their um, response was to national, international press and media. Yeah. And we follow, the th- there's three main characters, really. One, is, the main character, I would say, is Valery Legasov. And his he's a nuclear scientist. He aids not only in the helping of the cleanup, but he sort of knows, eventually, through research, because the other main character is Kamyuk. Yeah. She's, she's also a physicist, and he aids her in researching what really caused this. And the main thing we find out, is that there's a fault in the design of these power plants in the Soviet Union with this a, called the AZ-5 button, which is basically a fail-safe, where basically if you're doing something or the power plant's acting up or something's not right, you press this button when all else fails, and that'll just sort of settle it back. Or Yeah, it's, it supposed, to, it's supposed to stop a runaway... Uh, uh, nuclear fission reaction in a nuclear pile by reinserting the control rods at a rapid rate. And control rods are supposed to uh, 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 modulate the, the rapidity of the nuclear reactions. And they attempt to do it, but um, because of the way those control rods are designed, um, they end up accelerating the uh, physical process and eventually causing the explosion. Causing the explosion in the very beginning of the show, the series, first episode, it's after that. It's two years after, and Legasov is dictating in this in his uh, um, audio what really went on, and he's he hangs himself. He commits suicide, which happened in real life. Yeah. And as we it shows in the aftertext of the very last episode, because of the suicide, because of those tapes were found, they were this. The Soviet Union was finally forced to address the problems and fix the problems of the AZ fives and all the other um, power plants across the Soviet Union. And it, when this, I remember, I saw this show pretty much when it came out, and. 
Ira, it's it, for a brief while. If you were, go on the Internet Movie Database, they rank like top greatest television shows of all time. For a while, this was number one. This was ranked ahead of even classics like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad yeah. or The Wire. And it's dropped down just a teensy little bit. It's still like top ten all the time. And I have to say, you know, sometimes that stuff's hyperbole, but. As far as miniseries goes, the only one of all time I can think is better. I can think of being better is Band of Brothers. Yeah, it's. I know as I was watching it, it was my first time watching, and I kept coming. Or you kept asking me, you know, uh, uh, in my. I think the word I used approximately two hundred and thirty-two times is impressive. This thing is very impressive. Uh, I think primarily it gets the science right, but it, it it just it also gets the politics right and the kind of the culture right. I mean, the the visuals of the film and the, the filming locations they they decided to use in former communist countries really get across the kind of a very common impression people have uh, visually with. Uh, life in communist countries, it, 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 just the grayness, grays and, and like and muted colors blues. Yeah, and, muted and blues, and and they really get that across. And you can tell they did a heck of a lot of work uh, trying to get authentic equipment from the time period. Everything mm-hmm. from the buses to the to the uh, tractors and even the face masks and the buttons the 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 actual control room as far as i know that's just a set but i i kind of dug around and found photos of the control rooms at the uh for uh, chernobyl nuclear plants and boy they really got it down everything to the last detail it it really is impressive i i i this is a work of cinema. It's just it's in, beside the point that it was made for television. It's really an experience. Yeah, and what's you even talk about this attention to detail. One of the small things you may even notice is in near the end of the very last episode when um, Sherbina and Legasov are talking. They're outside, and just in the background, you see like a, a Mickey Mouse, and it's like a knockoff Mickey Mouse. You yeah. see pictures that was actually there at yeah. Chernobyl, and I. It, it, I could be wrong, but I think for people who have made the pilgrimage to the exclusion zone and take pictures of the site, it's still there. It's still there, yeah, as well as they also captured the Ferris wheel that never had just been built. It wasn't quite open yet. They were about to open it, but uh, uh, it still stands there in kind of mute testimony to the events of, of 1986. Yeah, and that date is definitely in mind because this is still the Soviet Union. But just five years later, the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think this, I mean, they mentioned this in the aftertext was Gorbachev, who we see in the show, that he stated that this was pretty much the end for the Soviet Union. This disaster signified, and it just shows you see the actions the horrific actions, not just by Dyatlov, but by the two men above him, Fermin and I forget the other guy's name, but yeah. even just like the head of the KGB who's harassing Legasov and all the others, mm-hmm. you just see that this is a government that, I mean, it was, it was always like this. It wasn't just, yes. but it's, 
it was they care more about their image and how they you know their personification not just to in their own country but to the outside world more than protecting the people yeah and if it means many of their people will die then that's a sacrifice they're willing to make yeah and and it's it uh, i i think it is illustrative and symptomatic of uh the 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 weakness of the Soviet Union that actually brought it down. I really do think so. It, it's a uniquely kind of, it was a uniquely kind of paranoid culture. And people would even say that has survived to the present day. But I think that to some extent that's true in Russia, certainly in Putin's Russia, I think it's that way. But there was a period of openness after Gorbachev with Yeltsin, but it, it kind of closed back down. And uh, uh, it's interesting that it survived the communism because my first response to seeing this kind of film uh, and, and you know, knowing something about the events that happened and similar events that happened in China is, is my first response is to say, well, this is symptomatic of communism because it's uh, it's got it's, it's kind of a perfect storm to have these kinds of events happen in a communist country because they are very concerned with image. Because there, certainly in the Soviet case, it was a certain amount of, it's going to sound strange to describe them this way, but evangelism uh, about their, uh, in their belief systems. Um, They believed, I think for the most part, at least early on, but certainly, uh, certainly in the person of Lenin uh, and Stalin too. I mean, these guys wrote a lot about what they believed. Um, they believed they were on the vanguard of a huge and fundamental change in human uh, nature and human relationships. And they thought they were going to bring it on in their own country, uh, basically because they kind of bought the Marxist critique of capitalism and they felt that if they fundamentally changed the economic system, um, as Marx had predicted, uh, that would have follow-on effects in the uh, uh, moral beliefs and uh, ideologies that govern uh, society. And they thought it would happen once they had made that transition during the uh, 1917 revolution and removed uh, uh the existence of privately held property, privately held uh, institutions and corporations, things like that, uh, and, and, and replace that with public ownership of everything. They thought that would have an effect on what they called the superstructure, the, the, the rest of the culture, because the rest of the culture is heavily dependent on the economic system, the material being of man. They thought somehow or another that would also affect his um, uh, moral being as well. Well, it didn't happen. And they tended to blame that on leftover elements from the uh, uh, decadent uh, capitalist uh, cultures that they were trying to replace. So a very interesting twist was uh, formulated by Lenin at that point. It's basically saying, well, what we need to do is uh, form a kind of transition uh, uh, between uh, full communism and uh, the world as it is. And he, he would call it the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
And that would have a small vanguard, obviously, including Lenin himself, that have seen the future and almost like prophets, like Old Testament prophets. They, they have seen the future. They have seen the form of society we need to create, the end state toward which history is working. And we need to play the role of the vanguard for the rest of the world. And obviously, you're not going to be able to play that role of a vanguard if your own society is dysfunctional. So they would hide as well as they could the dysfunction when it did occur. As well, they would try sometimes uh, cockamamie schemes to make sure that not only was their society without fault, but flourishing economically at least. So you had these terrible, terrible experiments with uh, 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 large-scale planning of agricultural activity, industrial activity, they would call these five-year plans, uh, without the engine of private enterprise behind it. The state was supposed to plan this centrally. Uh, everybody was supposed to uh, 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 work in, in an egalitarian society and share, share all the fruits of this labor equally. It didn't work. Uh, and it's interesting, I, I think, the, the, the contrast between this case, which happened in, in, the, in the mid to late 80s and, and was shortly followed by the downfall of the system. Contrasting that with that international media, media you were talking about and technology that they reference, satellite technology on our part, U.S. had satellites up there. Imagine what would have happened if something like the tragedies in the agricultural experimentation, uh, uh, something like that occurred in the 80s. Or, slight variant there, uh, here, uh, imagine if something like Chernobyl had happened in the 50s. The rest of the world would probably have not known too much about it. And it's a little scary to think about what would have happened if a Chernobyl-like uh, disaster occurred in the 50s and the Soviet state was much more able to hide the fact. And that's interesting you bring that up because watching this, I, before I had watched this for the first time, I, my knowledge of Chernobyl was pretty limited. I was known that it was something that happened at a power plant in the Soviet Union in the 80s, a lot of radiation, that's pretty much it. Then I watch this, and watching it the first time, it almost plays out like, you know, either A, your typical disaster movie, like an Independence Day or The Day After Tomorrow, or a horror movie, because it is terrifying watching this and how close, I mean, as bad as it was, it could have been even worse in, like, it wouldn't have even just been the Soviet Union affected. Like, yeah. they were talking about in Scandinavia, yes. they were talking about, because one of the actors who plays um, Trevina is Stellan Skarsgård. And he's from Sweden. Yep. And he was even talking about it at that time. There were certain places for water or areas in Sweden you couldn't go to because yeah. it was affected by Chernobyl. So it just, it's its really terrifying in thinking about that. But no, the reason why it didn't get to that, it was wondering, was it because of this, I call it the Soviet sacrifice, this idea of, it's the end of the second episode of Sherbino, when three guys have to go in and turn the drains off so they can start working that cleanup effort. 
it's they they give them these faulty promises. You'll get a promotion. You'll get certain amount of ruples. They know that they're prob- they're going to die very soon because yeah. of that radiation. They're going almost right to the heart. But he tells them that a hundred all thousands of years of sacrifice are in our veins. I I'm he's because he's already he's just realized that because he's been at this place for so long he's not going to have long to live and Sherbino died less than five years after Chernobyl yeah so he's become he says I've come to peace with it you must too and we see that with the miners and the dangers they're facing and even the soldiers who even though they're having this like you know modified codpiece sort of thing that they're still probably going to face it and all the other people who had to do this so was this idea if the Soviets weren't so willing to sacrifice so many of their own people. Would this have been the disaster that affected, like, say, half of Europe? Yeah, um, I, I think one, the, the powerful message here and, and that's being sent via that set of characters is I think they would have made the choice to sacrifice themselves even if the Soviet state had not required it. And I... I, I and that, I think, does speak to historical experience in Russia. Russia has suffered a lot. And, and, and you can go back much farther in history uh, than uh, the 80s, but I think that the quintessential uh, uh, example is the suffering and the sacrifice they made during World War II. Uh, Stalin had a pact with Hitler, he was quite willing to split up Europe with Hitler. Hitler made the fatal mistake of uh, uh, betraying him. And it's true that Stalin threw people at the Eastern Front knowing full well that I've got a much larger population than Germany. I can simply uh, fight a war of attrition. So, yes, he ordered people there. But uh, in, in, a, in a lot of personal uh, uh, memoirs and accounts from that war, you see deep and abiding patriotism in a lot of those people that did go and fight on the Eastern Front. So you have to give them then that credit. They are not mere autom- automatons being sent, sent uh, as it were, to be uh, sacrificial lambs for the betterment of the Soviet state. They had a, a patriotism and and. Uh, very admirable willingness to sacrifice. And I think that's very well illustrated in the case of those three men that volunteer to go down and uh, uh, close the water chute because of the physics of the thing. You know, firemen were um, unintentionally adding fuel to the fire, so to speak, as they were trying to put the fire out. And they realized they had to drain it. And they realized the only way to do it was to send three human beings down there in that very highly radioactive environment, knowing that they're going to die in a year or two after they've done that, right? And you see it with the firemen, too. And what's, yeah, what, what he has that, it's that line Sherbina says is, every generation must know its own sacrifice, and that plays on later in a scene when there's an evacuation effort, and this young soldier is trying to get this old lady farmer out and she's telling her she needs to leave and she's completely unfazed and then she gives this great monologue yes about she was she she's in her 80s and then you know it's interesting at this time there were probably still people alive who remember russia pre-soviet union she was talking about i was a yep. child during the revolution 
and she was specifically talking about the great famine that suffered in Ukraine, the farming famine in 32 and 33, where millions died, which was yes. mainly due to Stalin. Yep. So you had, she lived through that, and then she lived through the first, I mean, the second world war. So she lived through these things, and it is that ideology of just, this is just, you know, we have to go through this. This is just another phase of horrible yeah. famine. Millions will die, but we just have to get through this. And what's interesting I almost compare that even with World War II with another the big Chinese uh, Chinese government, the also communist government, mm-hmm. how millions of their people died during either this during also the Civil War, which was also in between World War II and fighting the Japanese. Yep. And even just reading a book I mentioned earlier on Desperate Ground about the battle chosen during the Korean War, you read for every one American soldier in that battle that died, nineteen Chinese soldiers died in the veterans who were interviewed talk about how the Chinese were just charge at them constantly. And yep. like some of them didn't even have guns. They just went at them with a knife or even a, you know some sort of primitive weapon. And it was, that was the government just willing to, we'll throw at as many of my people. I don't care. We, yeah. We'll get it because we just have so many. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 it does, I think, bring to mind a fact that if, if you read enough of the, the Soviet literature and Chinese communist literature, uh, they are willing to they are willing to make that kind of uh, mass sacrifice because they subscribe to an almost very uh, simplistic and uh, crude utilitarianism uh, when it when it comes to not only defending their country but being that kind of vanguard that exemplar for the rest of the world trying to show how communism is is going to work and it's the ideal human state. Um, uh, They're quite willing to lie to people, lie to their own people, uh, in order to give that appearance of being a highly functional uh, and successful and flourishing society. And the interesting thing about this film and the interesting thing about uh, a lot of the literature that came out of Russia is the ordinary man knows better. They at some point have become very cynical about that official position of the uh, Soviet and the communist party. Uh, But they're resigned to the fact that they can't change it. And you do have some true believers within the party, but uh, you can you can see the disillusionment in a lot of the characters in this film when when they refer to Lenin at the very beginning, right? Uh, and that, and that old party apparatchik kind of makes that speech. You know, wh- who is this plant named after? It's named after that man, and he points to the the standard portrait of uh, Lenin uh, up on the wall. Um, The applause that occurs after his little speech doesn't, at least in the case of one character, uh, actually one character doesn't even applaud. He's the character that was voicing that we need to evacuate. Everyone else is acting like it's no big deal. We got this under control. So he kind of knows the score. But even some of them that do applaud, 
you can kind of clearly, especially the three guys that are in charge of this plant, uh, you can see that they are applauding, uh, not because they're uh, necessarily true believers, but with a bit of relief that this guy made this little speech, and then perhaps that's going to deflect some attention away from them if they can somehow or another contain the disaster. They won't get the blame because the Soviet state will hide it because it has to hide it because it's not allowed to show that it has this kind of dysfunction. You know, there's a thoroughgoing fear of discovery in this this kind of closed society that uh, is much stronger and much of an much more of an inhibitor, much more of an inhibitor of true oversight of things like power plants or the military or things like that, as contrasted to Western cultures. Yes, there are self-interested people that want to hide it when they do something wrong here, but things come out in the open much quicker in the West. Uh, than they do there. You, you can think of nuclear uh, accidents that happened here. Three Mile Island's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, or the story of Karen Silkwood. Yeah. Um, these kinds of things uh, occur, but um, uh, the response is much quicker. And uh, even in the case of uh, nuclear power here before that particular accident, um, we had a lot more safeguards in place that were required. We did not take the easy route. For instance, containment structures are a common element and were a common element of uh, American nuclear power plants. Um, the Soviets didn't build them, and they tell you why in the film. They're cheaper. They're cheaper, and we know we can cut that corner because we have total control over information. And I think they were actually mistaken about having total control over information in the 80s. Like I said, by that time, things were unintentionally opening up a little bit more for them. And uh, Western uh, press and the U.S. government and other governments around the country were able to kind of peek inside where they couldn't before simply because of satellite technology. And uh, again... It's a good thing this accident did not happen in the 1950s. I think things would have been worse. Uh, They talk about that meltdown uh, down into the groundwater. I think the pressure from the the world press that happened relatively quickly in this case, and you can see it impels Gorbachev to take action, Um, it wouldn't have occurred. It would not have occurred. Or it would have occurred much more slowly. And by that time, it might have... uh, And that's the horrific thing about that particular um, part of the disaster. If that core had melted past that concrete barrier, it would have got any groundwater that, as they mentioned in the film, fed a lot of uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, water, the most fundamental thing of life. What would they have done? Yeah, and... Talking about, we talk about coronavirus, it's, I think now it's changed this, but when this show came out, this was becoming like a huge phenomenon, because this, many of the people in this movie are British, which, you know, with the accents, like, nobody's really doing a Russian accent, they're all British, but I, I don't mind it at all, but um, it's an interna- it was an international hit, and that led to a lot of people making a trip to Chernobyl, and... I find that interesting because there's still like you, they still try to disallow people from 
living there, even though I think there's been people who've been like squatters and been settling there and even growing land and supposedly they're okay. Yeah. So, but there have been trips to there and like they even show even at the very end, like they go to that basement in the hospital and use the counter to measure the radioactivity in the um, firemen's uh, suits and everything. And it's still, still high. It's 35, yeah. 30 yeah. something years later. Do you think it's um, people should make that trip? Do you think it's not? I mean, not only just the medical dangers, but do you think it's something they should just leave be, or do you think that's something well, people from should a, to learn? We help to it, learn. It does help to learn. You know, if people are going to make that pilgrimage, uh, they certainly need to take precautions. But uh, in in term, it, it's that's a curious story. Um, they did. An evacuation approximately, I think, 1,600 square mile area. And after a time, some of those people came back. They're not necessarily squatters. They're actually people that had lived there before. And it was their the, the only home they ever knew. So they came back. And that raises an interesting question uh, from the Russian government's perspective, Right should they have allowed these people to go back and knowing the knowing the risks of the radioactivity um now it's it true a lot of the people that did go back were elderly and you can understand how how elderly people would would simply just want to live out their remaining lives in a place they're comfortable with their home they've lived in there and probably their entire lives you have to remember soviet society people were not as mobile as we Americans are. The typical American is going to live in four or five different homes over the course of their life. So you don't, you don't form a deep attachment to either one, and you're used to moving, right? But even in our case, uh, as you get older, it gets, a little, it gets a little more dramatic to make those moves, and you do want to just find one place, put your roots down there, and live the rest of your life there. So I understand, you know, that... They may want to allow those older people back in um, with that, you know, that kind of calculation that uh, their life won't be shortened all that much anyway because of the uh, exposure to the radiation. But still, it does raise that very interesting question whether they should have kept it completely off limits. my My response to the case of the people that actually had lived there and are older i i might have made the same choice let let them come back now in terms of other people that are going there for tourism or educational purposes i think there is value in that however you need to approach it with the appropriate caution and i don't know if they do that that I'm not sure, but also you talk about for educational purposes, I do think there is a need also for treating the places with respect. Because even um, this amazing, the man behind the show had to go out and say, if you're going to make this pilgrimage, be respectful. Because there have been models, internet models, and quote-unquote social media influencers who go there and take glamour shots of themselves. And that is completely disrespectful. Yes. This is not a photo shoot. This is a place where that was a disaster. You need to treat it with respect. Yeah, And that's kind of a a trend that, for lack of a better term, is kind of a plague on the government or on the uh, 
for lack of a better term, it's a plague on the globe, a lot of historical sites. I've seen completely reprehensible pictures of the same nature at Auschwitz. Yep, I was about to say that too. Yeah, and you just, the mind boggles that these social media influencers or whatever the heck they are models have no qualms with doing that at these kinds of sites so i don't know how you prevent it if you are going to open them up to allow visitors um and it may be that it's an unavoidable side effect of allowing the visitors um but you certainly at least want to uh shake those people and say hey Show some respect. All right. Getting close to the end of my questions, anything else we want to bring up before we sign out? Um, I do want to bring up two things. Uh, books. Um, Mason, the, uh, the writer on the show, stated that one of the books that influenced him when creating this was uh, Voices from Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexievich. She, is, she gathered interviews from a lot of people who were there one of which was Ludmilla Ignatenko, who's a main character in this. And she told her story with her husband, who was a firefighter, and how she lost her child. Mm-hmm. That is a very good book, and you get a personal view. And even they talk about how the prejudice people had after this incident with people who lived in Chernobyl. People were afraid of them. They figured that they were sick. And how that played into Russian society after this, but that and this wasn't an influence. But talk about convenient timing. This was a, another book called Midnight in Chernobyl, and it came out almost the exact same time as the miniseries, even though he was not in collaboration with Mason at all. I know at the, that author's name is Adam, Adam Higginbotham. Yeah, and I know he's had um, a few things to say about the miniseries and how they've got some things wrong. But those are two good books. If you want to read more about this, and definitely with the Higginbotham book, get more of accurate representation, those are two I would recommend. Yeah, as far as I know, that particular book is also very good on the technology. Um, And I guess my parting words are that I think it would be the wrong message to take from this film that it's an anti-nuclear energy film i think mason even said in the podcast that i'm not anti-nuclear energy he says he's more i'm just pro common sense and accountability yeah and that was fun that's fundamentally lacking in that soviet closed system um and we have to keep in mind that uh, nuclear power, like any other power, has certain risks with it, and uh, you can make the you can make the argument that coal-fired plants do a lot more damage to the environment than nuclear plants do. Even with the extant uh, accidents that have occurred, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, um, and there are countries in the world that have, if not a majority of their power provided by nuclear. Uh, plants, at least a very significant portion of it. Um, in Europe, in particular, France is, has a lot of nuclear plants, and they've had very little or no accidents, and actually here too in the United States. So, I, I would, I would want that would be my parting message. It would that would be the wrong, uh, wrong message to take from this film that it's anti-nuclear power. Just like you said, design them well have oversight, and by all means, continue with international uh, monitoring and regulation. And it'll be a very useful 
source of power and one for that people are concerned about climate change. Hey, it's a good substitute for uh, fossil fuel burning. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usne.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.